Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He's the man who has read well over half a million brain scans, and Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Jay Gunkelman. Good morning. What tickles your ivories this morning? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, we've we've uh, seen uh, changes in adolescence and uh, their uh, psychological psychiatric presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the fact that they get two hours less sleep per night. Um, th- there's some major things going on, and they basically need to uh, be addressed at a neurophysiological level, uh, not a pharmacological level, uh, because all the drugs that you take to counter anxiety virtually are addictive. Um, yeah. Sedating uh, uh, drugs, benzodiazepines. Um, uh, GABA B uh, uh, drugs like Flexeril. I mean, there's a lot of meds out there that can be taken for anxiety, and very few of them end up being good long term. But the complaint of anxiety can be addressed neurophysiologically. And um, it, to start with, it's it's not just a head. We're not a disembodied brain. And the body has electrical activity going on as well. The sympathetic portion of the autonomic nervous system controls your eccrine sweat glands, uh, the gland, the, the sweat glands on your hands and face and feet. Right. Not like uh, temperature for perspiration, but but these are emotional uh, perspiration. There's actually a small muscle in the uh, in the sweat gland that acts like a syringe and, and it's a myoepithelial cell sympathetically innervated it can squirt out uh, when uh, triggered uh, with something a sympathetic arousal mm-hmm. so your electrodermal activity uh, what used to be called galvanic skin response um, the old GSR yeah. light detector kind of stuff but that's that's a measurement of peripheral uh, arousal. You also have temperature, and some people that are anxious end up having cold hands, and that's also sympathetically innervated. Hello, Mari. Hello. Dr. Mari. Hello. (laughs) So we were just chatting about the dire circumstance of some of the younger adolescents complaining of anxiety yeah, and yeah. and we're. I was just saying it's not all, you know, anxiety isn't all in your head, and um, the the peripheral measurement, peripheral to who, you know, <laughs> it's the same person, but uh, the electrodermal activity, and I described the echo sweat glands and um, sympathetic innervation, and temperature also sympathetically innervated. So cold hands, and the obvious cold wet hand. Uh, which is an obvious indication of a gross sympathetic over arousal. 
And, you know, it's everybody's shaking hands with somebody who's got a, a, a cold, wet hand. And uh, that that's an indication of a really very, very, very uh, over-aroused individual. So, um, thinking about that day, I would, I, I would just punch percent with you. It's not where it is. It's where you're measuring it. It's every body and the brain. Yeah. yeah. So in the brain, we actually end up having a few things that can end up looking like anxiety. You know, anxiety is like a DSM category. And it's a, not a homogeneous thing. And the fact that you have anxiety doesn't predict a specific treatment. Uh, what you need to do is look to see what kind of anxiety they have by looking at the brain and the body. And if you see electrodermal and temperature, you've got some peripheral training that can be done very readily with biofeedback devices to end up putting sympathetic nervous system under your volitional control and winding down that over arousal. Very easily done and, and very inexpensive devices. But you know, um, the, the, the brain can also be a part of this and um, uh, anxiety quite often ends up leading to addiction and that's an unfortunate circumstance, but it's an extremely common uh, drive. Anxiety either has gross overarousal, uh, and two thirds of the addicted people have overarousal as their drive, or they may have an anterior cingulate disturbance, which drives their anxiety. And that also can give a drive towards addiction, an obsessive compulsive drive. One third of the addicted population have an anterior cingulate problem. The, the overarousal people can end up with alpha theta style training. And that's about two thirds of the population that's got addiction. The other one third have to have the anterior cingulate dealt with. And that's not posterior alpha theta that does it. You've got to get up front and fix the cingulate. Uh, the cingulate has three primary failure modes. You can fail in slow or alpha. Those are the two that were identified by uh, the, uh, Leslie Pritchup and Roy John in their initial cluster analysis of OCD. There's one kind of OCD in the DSM. Yeah. So why not just look for two kinds with a cluster analysis? And it found a slow cluster that responded 15% of the time to an SSRI, which is commonly what's given for OCD. Uh, Luvox is kind of the knee-jerk uh, um, SSRI to give, but others are used as well. But uh, if you have a slow pattern, 15%, well, you get a 30 to 35% response to placebo. So 15% is essentially a non-responding cluster. The alpha cluster, on the other hand, had an 85% positive response to, to SSRI. Where else, point anywhere else in the literature where there's an 85% success rate for an SSRI? Give me a break. This is a lock and key. This pattern is an SSRI you know, flag. If you've got anterior cingulate, high coherence up front, you've got a an SSRI. If it's above 10, then unfortunately you're, you're too 
excuse me, too over aroused, uh, the SSRI will end up causing a problem at that point. But a tetracyclic at that point can work. So, you know, there's the the, the brain can be involved in it, and the solution uh, is in typically at that point in neurofeedback more than pharmacological. Um, the, the anterior cingulate had two clusters found by their cluster analysis. We've also seen an anterior cingulate beta cluster. Roy John used a database that only went up to 25 hertz, and we quite often see beta spindles in the high 20s, low 30s. So, you know, they, they, they weren't available in their data set. So, um, but the, it, if you disturb the cingulate's function with alpha, or theta or beta, what you get is a dysfunctional cingulate giving you either a locked on like OCD or locked off, a motivation, lack of initiation, anhedonia. So, you know, we, we can't tell when we look at it, how, whether it's on or off, we could just say, well, that's not what, you know, it's not working. Um, and we can design an intervention to fix that. And, um, you know, it's, uh, um, it's not a an easy spot to get at. It's deep, but you know the, the it projects the the EG projects up to the surface there well enough. We can get at it from a surface electrode. There's some people that design a Loretta uh, a source localization to actually uh, describe the anterior cingulate that they're going to be training. And they train it with the S Loretta, uh, not a, a Z score Loretta, but an S Loretta, just looking for that as the source. And then you already have to know whether it's a, uh, just because you define the source doesn't mean you're, you're suppressing the right kind of content. You've got to know whether it's a theta or, or an alpha or a beta um, and target the appropriate frequencies for training. But, you know, it's it's also the case that in anxiety, there's a certain percentage of them that have unexpected epileptiform discharges. In the literature, uh, it varies. Uh, the, the, there's not a whole bunch of studies, uh, but the, the few that are there, uh, one shows a 12% incidence. And you say, oh, well, 12%, that's not so much, is it? Well, the background population is the three percent, so twelve is a you know four hundred percent increase above baseline. So that's not great. But if you have panic on top of the anxiety, the the odds go up to about a third. So you know, uh, if you don't look at the EG, you don't know whether they've got epileptiform discharges, um, and you you might treat them with a pharmacological agent that may potentiate more uh, if you don't know that they're there. If you know they're there, you can choose how to treat them. And uh, there's a number of ways, obviously. Uh, yeah, nothing like treating the wrong condition. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you don't want, I'd love to, you know, um, as always, we go around the world within three, <laughs> three minutes. Uh, so I want to pick a couple of pinpoints. But um, yeah, I also think we, we have to be a little bit... Um, cautious of the, the term anxiety. Um, I want to play a little bit of a semantic game here. Um, I, I really like using the term arousal. You know, there's positive arousal, negative arousal, all these various stages of arousal. And I think the key is 
when does arousal turn negative and then we term it as anxiety? One of the things I really, really stress uh, working primarily with children and adolescents is kind of flipping and reframing, saying, hey, you know what? You need a little bit of anxiety. You need what I call functional anxiety because it tells you you care, all right? Writing that exam, if you're just, oh, who cares? You're not gonna write an, a good exam. If you're gonna be in a little dance performance or a play and you don't have a couple of little butterflies, again, you're gonna go out there, who cares? Not learn your routine, et cetera. So I think it's really, really important to frame this in terms of uh, the, the human self messaging system. Um, and, and when to listen to it versus when it's too loud and it's screaming, creating that dysfunction. Um, and then, of course, I think that's your link into addiction. Uh, when the scream of the anxiety, the nervousness, et cetera, uh, is so high, that's where we all become attracted to self-medicating behaviors. But I think in our modern um I'd say pathologizing uh, culture. We press, pun intended, the panic button a little bit uh, too quickly. Um, and some of the work that um, that we do is, you know, we hook people up, show them where this this emotion is coming from in the brain, um, and see is it working for you? Is it not working for you? And what do we need to tone down versus not tone down? Now, looping back to Jay, <laughs> if this is actually a micro uh, seizure that we're calling panic, <laughs> it's actually you know something entirely different. Then, then that's a different story. But, but there's a whole range in our in our reality. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you know, and uh, the the behavior does not necessarily predict what you're going to find. Quite often it will tell you what network is not working right, but mm -hmm. it doesn't tell you how that network is not working right. So yeah. you might be guided to the right spot by the behavior, but you have to look at the EG to see what's wrong there. And yeah. that will then allow you to know how to fix it. So, and yeah. luckily brains are so plastic, which has gotten a whole terrible spin because of plastics, you know, but uh, uh, plasticity is malleability, changeability, and uh, your, your brain is extremely changeable. You have the right to change your mind, you know, and, um, and uh, actually there was a, a manufacturer that, uh, that had that as a, a, a sticker, uh, but they, they went out of business shortly thereafter. When the company says you have the right to change your mind, you go, oh, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe that won't be the one I get then. Uh, but you make uh, a gender joke here now? Choosing <laughs> <laughs> the intelligence of females, knowing that the right to change one's mind is actually a positive thing? <laughs> yeah. So, well, another thing, given that we have you, Master Jay, um, I have a running joke, which is the cingulate, you know, I call that the stubborn region of the brain is the hardest. It's the most stubborn to train. Um, any tips for our viewers in terms of best ways to uh, access 
uh, that region. I can share in terms of, um, you know, what I do. I tend to, you know, look at the occipit for quieting, the frontal lobes, and the last place I go to is the cingulate, not because it isn't the most important place, but because I can get much more traction working in the underplanes. And I guess massaging, making the cingulate ready for change. Um, do you have any uh, training insights that you'd care to share? Well, one of the things you have to realize is that the cingulate sounds like one thing, <laughs> but it's actually uh, the, the, the cognitive division, the rostral and the subgenual affective divisions. So you have to know what you're shooting at before you go placing your electrodes. And FZ is a perfectly appropriate spot to get at for the cognitive division. Uh, rumination, you know, stuck thoughts, uh, compulsive thoughts, th those kind of things are up there. But if it's, a, if it's an affective division, you're going to have to get off your FZ and move your little electrode butt forward to AFZ or FPZ. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody uses nasopharyngeal electrodes anymore for a reason. I don't know if anybody here has ever done one of those. I'm old enough in EEG to know when we used to have to do them on a fairly routine basis when the doctor ordered them. Imagine a coat hanger piece about that long with a bend in the middle in the bend and then a silver ball on the end of it. This is all insulated, but the silver ball is not. It's a and centimeter. And we thought the COVID swipe was bad, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, is, this is a centimeter size silver ball. So yes. if you want to simulate it, take the tip of your little finger and shove it all the way up your nose. I mean, this is painful. Quite often led to bleeding noses. But they went up and, and if you know what you're doing, you can angle them up and measure the orbital surface of the frontal lobe or the middle midline of the frontal lobe. If you didn't know what you're doing, you could crisscross them and the one up the right nostril could be on the left side, you know. But that it, it was it was largely given up. Um, uh, you, you can get equivalent information uh, without having to uh, tear somebody's nasal septum, you know, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but the, the, where on that anterior cingulate are, are you targeting and why? If you look with the EEG, there's some subtle features that end up predicting how far forward you're going to have to get. Uh, when you look at the alpha peaks up front um, and you find the hypercoherence, you know you're going to end up having to work frontally. And if you find FP1, FP2 alpha are bigger than F3, F4 alpha in any kind of a significant way, you've got a rostral or subgenual source up there. It, it, it isn't like alpha from the back is getting weaker and weaker and weaker as you go forward. That has gotten larger when you went further forward. You've got an anterior cingulate source. And at that point, it's, it's not cognitive, that would be FZ. If FZ is big and FP1, FP2 aren't as big, you've got a cognitive division. But if you have FP1, FP2 large, you're going to be shooting at the rostral or subgenual location. 
And again, some people put an entire cap on, have a Loretta predefined location, and they can feed back the activity there with S Loretta. That has been shown to actually work. There's efficacy literature support for that technique. Not for any, just for that technique, not for any particular application of that technique, but they have shown that you can actually train a brain area uh, with S Loretta. Now, there's a few applications that are starting to uh, uh, get some efficacy uh, specific with that. Uh, some of the work from DeRitter's lab on the anterior uh, cingulate and uh, posterior cingulate um, uh, and the default and salience network and all that. Uh, some of that is, is, is uh, uh, going to be probably in the next round of, um, of the uh, white papers that form the basis of our uh, field's uh, efficacy literature. Uh, it, it takes a while. It's got to, all these things have to be published and uh, hopefully replicated. And at that point, uh, they, they end up with a, a shift in what has uh, efficacy support. But um, I, I have to say, uh, um, we worked with addiction. Uh, we had an N of 30. And uh, the, the 30 that we did, Uh, here we are. Uh, this this was the the publication in the biofeedback, but I've got the PowerPoint, which has got a little better graphics. Uh, you you don't need to focus on the stats statistics of of uh, addiction. I mean, for goodness sakes, everybody knows it costs us a damn fortune, and if you spend money on treatment that saves you money on problems um but uh that you know um we actually do have efficacy literature our field uh back when i was president of isnr and uh, don moss was president of aapb and we we got a group together this group and they came up with a template that could end up guiding you as to how uh, efficacious the application you're talking about actually was uh, what kind of study you need to have to make what kind of claim. And using that, uh, we actually have probably efficacious as the level of support for both the Peniston and the Scott protocols. Those are essentially alpha theta style protocols. So it all. <laughs> and, and again, uh, Peniston Kukulski uh, did some sympathetic training with electrodermal or temperature, and then did the alpha theta. Scott does uh, some HRV, but they also have uh, some pretreatment either with SMR or, or beta or suppression uh, to get rid of an alpha or a theta problem before the alpha theta is trained. So the, the Peniston is kind of old school. Um, uh, if you have an alpha excess, they didn't do QEGs ahead of time to, uh, to guide them. Uh, uh, Scott's seen obviously all, all of that. Um, what we found is essentially in our N of 30, uh, we had 21 of them that had over arousal as their drive mechanism for their addiction. And about a third of them had an OCD drive for their addiction. Now, over arousal was either a low voltage fast EEG, 
which gets SMR training and then alpha theta. And this is straight out of the 2005 phenotype uh, um, model publication. If you have fast alpha phenotype, you get alpha theta directly. You don't just go straight to alpha theta, don't pass go, don't collect $200, just go straight to that training. Um, beta spindling, um, and the, this is the N of uh, them, um, SMR training and then alpha theta. So if you have over arousal, alpha theta is part of your training. It's a, it's a core part of your training uh, to drop your arousal level and gain control. And once you train it, um, the, the drive of over arousal is gone and the behavior associated with it, the addiction is gone. Uh, cingulate uh, either had, uh, these were at FZ, these are all at the back of the head. Uh, we had either alpha or slow or beta. This is a low voltage fast EEG, eight to 12 Hertz Z score, uh, blue heads, basically a deficit compared to normal. Now time one, two shots of alcohol. You can see they're getting a little bit of alpha. Time two, total of four shots of alcohol. Now they got some pretty good alpha going. Uh, time three, now this is six shots of alcohol. You know, most people with six shots of alcohol are, well, I haven't drank in over 30 years, but geez Louise, even back when I could, six shots of alcohol is a fairly stiff start. Yeah. Now, Pete's a big guy, and he might take a few more than over uh, than the normal person, but for goodness sakes, um, uh, most people start here with alpha, and two shots would get them loose and like six shot has this low voltage fast person. You can see why the low voltage fast EEG, which has a gene number four marker genetically, which you produce more GABA A receptor sites than you can saturate. So you're over aroused and you need some GABA. Well, alcohol gives you GABA, but you can get GABA from lots of things now, you know, benzodiazepines, various you know, opioid kind of things will kind of work as well, but, um, you know, it's, it's a slippery slope towards addiction. If you have that pattern, mm -hmm. the cingulate, this is the anterior cingulate slow group. This is up in the faster frequencies. This is a low voltage fast. You can see, uh, Z scores are all basically negative. They're starting to get almost normal up into the higher frequencies, but this is a low voltage fast EEG which is again, an over arousal pattern. If you could reach into the thalamus and control the polarization, you could control the frequency of the alpha. And if you hyperpolarize it, you slow it way down. If you hypopolarize it, you can speed it up. If you speed it up and up and up, you get like 12 Hertz, real fast alpha. People are very sharp and bright. Speed it up a little bit more and a little bit more. 15, 16 hertz, it starts to desynchronize. It can't line up the peaks anymore. So then it's desynchronized. It's a low voltage, fast EEG. It's so over aroused, it doesn't have a rhythm. Now, the first description of that was Adrian and Matthews in England, early 1930s. They were looking for the Berger rhythm right after Berger's publication on EEG. And Adrian had alpha. Matthews had an EEG with no apparent rhythmicity. And you, you realize what kind of quality amps they had. 
a low voltage fast EG, they wouldn't have seen the damn thing. So, uh, and because they were lab partners, it became called a normal variant. And, you know, low voltage fast EGs are not really a normal variant. They are a, a deviant pattern uh, that, that indicates gross over arousal. You can treat it. It doesn't have to be pathology. You don't have to be a drunk. You could be a dry drunk, you know, a teetotaler who never touched anything. Um, uh, this is fast alpha, uh, 12, 13 hertz fast alpha. And again, this person basically gets the 8 to 12 hertz alpha training, and you fill in the slower alpha frequencies, and you're going to suppress some of these faster frequencies. So you're going to shape it down into a normal rhythmicity. And um, alpha theta training, you have to get the alpha first. Um, if, you, if you're missing alpha frequencies and you start to do the theta, uh, Anna Weiss used to call that a gooseneck, where there was a missing frequency band. And uh, she would suggest energy couldn't really flow along the frequency spectrum. It would be a, a block. Uh, so uh, you've got to get the alpha working all the way through the alpha band uh, before you start to do theta crossovers. Uh, beta spindles, I mean, here the, the size of the beta is gigantic. And um, so uh, uh, what did we find? Well, uh, just like the Royal College of Medicine, alpha theta training decreased the overarousal. Uh, uh, John Grisellier found that alpha theta training for people that had some alpha in the first place, not a low voltage fast person, because that will end up creating alpha. But if you had it in the first place, these were students that had it, um, it decreased beta, it decreased the overarousal. Uh, and then Marco Congito showed that anterior cingulate related training could get you contingent behavioral improvement in OCD. So that, that, that's basically um, our, our work was similar to that. But with one year follow-up, all 30 people are still clean and sober. And that's not normal. You know, that's kind of a... That's uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, my goodness. Um, it's hard to get people to even believe the results uh, because it's so... I mean, recidivism is the nature of addictive treatment. And getting a 30% success rate is considered pretty damn good. Um, so 100 clean and sober at the end, end, end of one year is, that's kind of an extraordinary claim. But we trained, Pennison got 70%, but he did alpha theta. He didn't address the anterior cingulate group, so he would get about 70%. Yeah, who had missed the anterior cingulate group. So um, this is a pre-post Woodcock-Johnson 3 can be given that one-year follow-up. So uh, we got a 21-point jump in IQ. Standard scores, pre-score on thinking ability, 103 to 122. Cognitive efficiency, standard score, 94 to 118. These, you know, when you make the brain work better, it works better. You know, and a 21 point IQ jump is not supposed to happen. Yeah, look, look at the IQ manual stuff. They say, well, a small percentage change, a little variability, but 21 point jump, come on. 
You know, that's that's unheard of. Um, audiovisual learning ability. This isn't a great score to start with, but it turned out pretty well. Now, this is delayed recall. That score for a delayed recall is awful. Uh, if you hide a $10 bill under your keyboard on the computer and tell them at the end of the session, if you can tell me where the $10 is, you get to keep it. You could probably keep that $10 during the end of that session. Uh, I mean, their, their, uh, their ability to remember anything for 30 minutes is pretty, pretty slim. It came up to normal, but it started out really bad. And here the mean is 65. Over here, 65 is about here. So well, you're talking about, you know, brain effects, but also life effects. I think one of the the other things that, you know, I'm going to play with elephants with alcoholism. But, um, you know, the elephant in the room is if you remove a consistent sedative, your intelligence is is, is going to shoot up as well. So I, I think you're, you're, yeah. you're getting this from both sides. So to me, these results are are, are beautiful and, and, of course, should be celebrated, but they're uh, they shouldn't be so surprising given what you were doing. You know, it's, it's something that works. Yeah. You know, we, we added uh, neurofeedback uh, based on their phenotype uh, mm -hmm. to a kind of a standard stepper program. You know, it wasn't a bad stepper program. It was a fairly expensive one, but still the model wasn't anything different than what you'd find in most 12-step uh, 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 programs. Well, I don't know. I mean, also, Jay, I mean, the other thing you have to consider is you're not just removing the alcohol, you're, you're quieting, right? Yes. So it makes a and, huge difference, you know, yeah. talking about reasons and, for, uh, for, for, for sliding back and re recidivism. In, in this uh, program, it wasn't all alcoholism. Either. Oh, all right. So uh, the, the, there, there were a variety of, uh, well, well, that, that said, you know, somebody who's got a low voltage fast that gets into alcohol will potentially at some point want to have a little cocaine so they can have a little more alcohol. So, you know, the uh, the, the mix That's the of, party model, isn't it? <laughs> the, the, the mix of once you're in, into an addictive lifestyle, uh, what what you have access to largely ends up determining stuff. And um uh, but the, some some addictions are much more damaging than others. Um, uh, uh, cocaine, crack, uh, uh, cocaine, um, and then obviously the death rate with o opioids and uh, fentanyl and all of that. So um, it, yeah, it's uh, addiction is uh, hazardous to life and limb, and it's damaging to life and quality of life and. Uh, uh, relationships in life um, uh, and teenagers right now have a, a, a lot of stress now stress is not bad strain is bad mm -hmm. you know um, uh, stress is the the fire that was lit under your butt that got you up to go do something um, uh, strain is sitting there so long that your butt gets burned you know so um, you you really do need stressors in life, um, but you you need to handle them properly. And chronic stress ends up being damaging. Uh, that that that's problematic. 
Uh, well, we're you know, moving right back into the anxiety, the discussion on anxiety. Yeah. It, it, it's semantics uh, about frequency and consistency and, and levels. Yeah. If your arousal is kicked up because of anxiety and the stress is chronic, your, your brain responds to the stress by making cortisol. And if it makes cortisol consistently all the time, it actually shrinks your hippocampus. So your memory processor isn't going to be really that functional. And to a certain extent, some of the very poor memory performance within the study may have been predicted by, you know, uh, uh, drugs and alcohol negatively impacting brain function in that you know, hippocampus not working so well. So how do you reinflate the hippocampus, Jay? Well, we, we basically hope to not end up damaging it. But, um, you know, uh, a long time ago, I would have thought that the white matter was just wiring and it was fixed. Once you got it, that was what you got. And, you know, Mario Beauregard at Montreal Neurological published a couple of papers showing that neurofeedback changed white matter and gray matter. And that should have been enough for me, but I'm a little slow. And it took me one more kick in the head to, to get it. And that was Dr. Pineda's work at San Diego on autism, where they used diffusion tensor imaging. And the neurofeedback seemed to sculpt the white matter that was observed in the DTI studies. So, yeah, I, um, and, you know, gray matter and white matter. Now, uh, you, you've got uh, hippocampus that if it's severely damaged, it usually isn't seen to major have a major recovery, uh, but that's structure, not function. And, uh, you know, uh, as an example, in Parkinsonism, the damage to the substantia nigra has to be about 70% gone before you show your tremor. So, you know, the fact that you're lo you've lost 20% of your hippocampus may not be uh, a, a fatal blow to hippocampal function. Uh, you, Don't you tell probably, the kids that. <laughs> you probably still have some uh, capacity there as long as you don't continue to whittle away at it. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the kids theta beta ratio in 1999 was, um, able to predict, uh, the occurrence of ADD, ADHD from normal 95 to 98% accurate. The amount of sleep they get now is two hours less per night. And the theta beta ratio effect size went from 1.8, which is how you get that high of percent accuracy, differentiating two groups from each other, effect size is the way you measure that. It went down to 0.2 to 0.4. Those groups are overlapping so bad, you can't tell one from the other anymore based on the theta-beta ratio. Yeah. Yeah. The ratios up around 12 to 1 start to become a little more likely to be in the ADD group but it used to be outside normal at five to one. Yeah. That was three standard deviations out back in 1999. So that's, you know, it's uh, the lack of sleep is considerably damaging to brain function. And, 
you know, during sleep, you consolidate memory. During sleep, you produce growth hormone, uh, which allows you to recover from the wear and tear and allows you to grow new brain connections that you can play REM back through to consolidate memories with. You know, sleep is a critical piece of function. And if Thank you disturb you so, your sleep so too badly. Thank you so much for that up, Jay. Um, I, I think you know that we, we keep a really, really strong clinical database. We've been doing so now for over 20 years. And tracking that uh, is just, it's phenomenal what we're, what we're seeing. Um, and I think it is, it's the generalized hyperarousal and sleep deprivation in the whole population. We, we have to start taking this seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some kids now when we do testing on them, uh, they're, they're actually achieving vertex sharp waves indicating stage two sleep with their eyes open. Mm -hmm. And that's a sleep disorder. Yeah. Uh, that, that's essentially narcolepsy with no cataplexy. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't stay awake. Yeah. Eyes open. Yeah. yeah when and, we put caps on kids now, like they're, they're, they're just gone uh, to the point there, you know, we, we, we just stop the, uh, the assessment. There's no point in doing it. You're just getting a person snoozing. And if you do neurofeedback with a person who's got a sleep disorder, and they're not sleeping, they're not consolidating the memory of what they learned from the session. So you could pay twice as much or three times as much for your neurofeedback because it took you that much longer to get it. The efficiency per session has gone way down because of the lack of sleep. So uh, uh, sleep is an important part of it. And I urge people that are uh, doing a practice to get a hold of a, a free sleep assessment, the Pittsburgh Sleep Inventory. And it's a, it's a self-report that's very brief, but standardized, and it, it catches outlier odd sleep issues that, you know, that it isn't necessarily your first line of questioning when somebody walks in the door. Uh, but if they, if they filled out this short now. report, it'll flag you. Jane Marie, you both brought up that there should be, you should have a certain amount of stress. You don't want too much. Like, what is the line that you're crossing? And what do you see on the EEG? Like, what's something objective that you can look at besides sitting in a chair too long and my butt being on fire or whatever you said? <laughs> <laughs> this, so, this is where the classic answer, it depends. Depends. Yeah. Depends on what? Yeah. <laughs> that depends, yeah. though. That's what you have to wear because your butt's on fire. <laughs> No, Jay, but a good so, one. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what I would suggest is, is that we go back to the 1950s, Malmo and Chagas. Uh, they, they developed the knowledge of the arousal performance continuum. If you're under aroused, you don't perform very well. Imagine waking up in the morning, groggy, sluggish, under aroused. Where the hell is my coffee? You know, well, you need a little bit of an increase in arousal to start to actually function at all. Uh, but once you've got enough arousal, further arousal, like drinking a third cup of Pete's coffee, uh, uh, like like I might make it, you know, um, uh, <laughs> the spoon stands up and slowly dissolves, you know. Um, but if you 
if you do that, you, you've got such a high arousal level that you become harried and scattered and incapable of decision making because you're just being flooded with over aroused. You know, how, what, how do you measure that arousal? Well, Malbo and Shagas had a flicker fusion rate, but you can look at your alpha frequencies. If your alpha frequencies are real slow, you need more stress or stimulation. And if it's too fast, you're over aroused and too scattered and too harried. And it, you know, it could be Goldilocks, 10 hertz, nine and a half, 10 hertz, the Goldilocks frequency. Uh, but you could be too fast or too slow, and uh, your arousal level determines that. Now, ideally, you have a broad range of alpha, uh, a, a, a much slower and much faster. That range of alpha it allows for resiliency. If your alpha is just at 10, and the doctor would say, oh, 10 hertz, that's normal. Yeah, but if there's no variance... It's like having heart rate, no variability. It's a prediction of failure. It's too rigid a system. If it's under stress in one way or another, it will shatter. It won't flex. There's no resilience to it. So you want the little slop in your alpha frequency band. Um, it, 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 it's good to have a little faster and slower. If you're stuck on 10 or 12, um, you're, you're going to have difficulties winding down and your over arousal will keep you from uh, uh, winding down in the evening, for instance. So anyway, I, we're just we're rotating around the same three things. You know, we, you know, obviously you want to loop in, in, in sleep here. Uh, we also want to, you know, uh, loop in rhythms and patterns. I, I, I've kind of nicknamed in a couple of my presentations, alpha, the brain barometer, you know, um, it kind of measures the weather of the brain, but you need all kinds of different weather systems, depending on what you're doing and what you're not doing. And I think yeah. a really in tune alpha is, yeah, it, it's what it's all about. But the other thing I also want to kind of loop in is, um, <clears throat> we see this frequently with artistic process. You know, there's the notion of flow as well. And I think in, in academia, we, we, we get far too attached to this rigidity. Like you get up, yeah, you have your one cup of coffee. You need a little bit more to boost you up. Um, but I, I think we need to also respect the, the natural uh, variance. And sometimes arousal associated with production flow, um, it isn't constant. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a negative thing. I think also training a person to to recognize that uh, can be extremely important. Um, and also knowing when not to push it. Uh, working with, with children, I mean, bless the parents. They really, really want their kids to succeed. But they push too much too far. And the children do get in these beautiful um, states of, I would say, a certain amount of um, hyper uh, arousal. They produce very well. But they crash really hard as well. And we're looping right back into that anxiety. Right? So... Yeah, we're, we're coming full circle. I think the three topics are really integrating here. Yeah. In the EEG, eyes open, uh, when we have anxiety and PTSD, we end up seeing lambda waves. 
and the lambda waves end up indicating that the amygdala is overactivated with emotion and it changes the thalamic gating and the arrival of every visual input at the back of your head ends up being a gigantic lambda wave so and your visual hypervisual so you see lambda 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 um, which is a normal rhythm of what's well, a normal event associated with visual scanning but when you're told to sit there and stare at the wall and you get lambda 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 how what are you visually dissecting on the wall you know um, it's just visual hypervigilance and then when you close the eyes you turn on the default mode system and the right temporal parietal junction t6 or old old t6 new p8 as an electrocyte gets a gigantic alpha peak and that basically the there's an idling of the social perceptual area and it's it's perhaps self-protective but you've turned off or turned down your sensitivity to uh, affective input and uh, facial expressions body language um the the tone of speech uh, all of that's attenuated well, looping back into my work, that's what I see also with uh, individuals who really, really use screens excessively. Anyway, we've uh, got ability to end up training those sites and changing those patterns. Um, uh, um, you know, the, the human brain is plastic enough so you, it can change itself. It needs a little guidance. You know, the, I, I quite often here and I, it, it frustrates me when I hear it oh we just give the brain all the information and it figures out what to do with it oh, so <laughs> don't get me going don't get me going <laughs> if it was so good at figuring it out and making it good why is it so messed up now <laughs> you know so um you know the, the brain can be improved it can be optimized but it doesn't necessarily have the knowledge inside of itself as to how to get that done and that that's why there's some people out there like mari that are professionals that can end up helping on these things goodness knows don't come to me hey. <laughs> well i'm retired you know and i'm i'm not a therapist i'm i'm an old ag tech you know so uh, dr murray let's close deprecating one sorry <laughs> Mom and dad watching, listening. How do I know? How do they know their kid is too stressed? Observe them. Yeah. But I mean, gosh, you know, bless us all. We we tend to be very, very um, self-projecting. I would dare say even ignorant uh, about the, the some of the emotional states of, of, of the people closest to us. Um, and, and again, I'm not thinking, you know, narcissistically or, or uh, in, in a negative way, but very frequently our desires for, um, you know, children uh, to succeed, adolescents or even adult children and partners to um, succeed overrides our ability to see the downside, the catch-22, the potential suffering, the stress, the anxiety, right? So I'd say with anything, that there's it's a continuum. It's a continuum. I mean, the, the opposite that we're really seeing now is 
I you know many, oh, poor darling, poor darling, sit on the on your bed with your feet up and 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 watch your screen. Life is too stressful. I mean, that's the the opposite. We're seeing it all. But I, I would just say, talk with your kids, uh, observe them, uh, really see what makes them tick, push them enough so that they have all the tools that they need for the choices they want to make and be self-sufficient, happy, independent, successful people. Yeah, get 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 in there, be there, be there. If you're a techie kind of a parent, you might <laughs> consider getting them an aura ring or a Fitbit or an Apple Watch that will end up monitoring their physiology so that they can become tuned into that. Um, they, they can watch their own heart rate variability. Uh, they can look at their sleep scores. Um, you know, and and the, it does make some suggestions. Oh, I'm going to disagree with the great Jay. Yeah, I, I think people get obsessed with that and they, they lose their ability um, to feel within self. Um, I think it can be extremely important uh, to to ensure that you learn and you know without some kind of ex external device telling you how you're feeling based on your physiology. Now, as a starting point to understand, I'm completely with you. But I think at some point it's it's imperative to drop this. Like you shouldn't need a uh, a device to tell you that you're sleepy and it's time to go to bed. You shouldn't. That's why need a to tell you you're feedback hungry. is feedback is provided to sensitize you to the internal state, so you no longer depend on the device. But occasionally the device is needed to focus you on the internal sensation so that you can control it well enough so you don't need the device. But I, I do suggest that uh, adolescents who have sleep difficulties, the Aura Ring allows them to document exactly what kind of sleep problem it is. If it's an apnea, it has to be treated. Yeah. You know, and it'll catch the hypoxia. So uh, um, anyway, techie parents, the possibility of monitoring technology, uh, again, to sensitize the kid to the internal state stuff. And they don't necessarily end up having to wear it the rest of their life. But Well, kids don't want feedback get them from through. their parents. So that, that'll work. <laughs> it's a you know, third, third party. We all agree yeah. to, to uh, disagree. Don't get addicted to your addictions. <laughs> Actually, you know, I think you know. I think with rephrasing, Jay and I are the same page. You know, it's just a matter of uh, don't let don't let tech do the job all the time, but to to have tech bring you in to understand yourself yeah. better and be one with yourself better by all means. That that's the good part of tech. Yeah, I'm gonna have to ask ChatGPT what you just said. Jay Gunkelman, <laughs> the man who's read over 500,000 brain scans. Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Thank you for another outstanding episode of the Neuro Noodle Neurofeedback Podcast. Thank you. Bye. The Neuro Noodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. 